Welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from Holly McKay. So this time we're going to be talking about a couple of recent articles from Holly. How are you doing this morning, Halls? Hey, well, thank you. Oh, very good. All right. So the first one we're going to be talking about is an article you wrote about um, stateless kids of ISIS fathers. Um, yeah, is- so it's been, you know, this is a topic. It's been five years now since um, ISIS was declared defeated in Iraq. And, you know, as you can imagine, the world's moved on to other conflicts. And this is sort of a one of those lingering aftermath of war that we don't really hear about. And that is just the sheer number of children that were born to ISIS fighters. And these children are a school age now. Um, and they're in this really, you know, horrible predicament of not belonging to any country. So um, because of their father's sins, basically, they can't get some um, documentation to, to be Iraqi. And in many cases, they may have a foreign father, which is a foreign fighter that's either detained or, or being killed in battle um, and not known who they really are. So therefore, um, you know, they can't assume the father's um, identity if they don't know who it is. So it, it's this really awful gray area um, that really has a lot of ramifications. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, when I read the article, I, the, the the thing that struck me the most about it was um if you look back through history that this has happened pretty much in every conflict uh every empire that's ever been and it's an enduring it really is an enduring issue that about uh, you know the the children of um those who were part of the conflict and then um but they don't get to leave so um what what what's being done so, you know, it is, it's obviously, it's a, you know, well, let's sort of first of all start with, um, you know, the term stateless obviously refers to a person not classified as a citizen by any state. Um, it's a violation of international law, mind you, um, according to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everybody needs to belong to some country or another. So, um, you know, they, everybody has a right to legal identity, to nationality, and to immediate birth registration. And obviously in this case, that, that's just not happening. Happening. Um, and in terms of what is being done, well, really not a lot. So I talked to so many different Iraqi officials and, and they all basically kind of admitted that, that this isn't, you know, this is a, a country that has a lot of its own issues. It can't form a government eight months after its election. Um, so really, this is very much down the bottom of the list in terms of things that politicians care about. And in many cases, there are politicians that really do believe that these children should not belong to the Iraqi state. Um, so, but, you know, we have to remember that children are innocent. So there are some lawmakers in the past that have tried to issue what they call yellow cards. And they give the mother yellow cards if she goes through this sort of denunciation process for ISIS. Um, and then the children get yellow cards. But but as one politician sort of described it, this effectively makes them a gypsy in Iraq. So it doesn't make them, um, it's not legal documents. And, and it really it makes them even more ostracized in many ways um, because, you know, then it is very known that they have, um, you know, this ISIS connection and so therefore they are ripe for targeting. Um, but even without those yellow papers, it's very hard for children to go to school, to access medical care, even to, to pass a military checkpoint. And as you can imagine, in a country like Iraq, which is you know, quite a military presence, that's a, that's not a particularly, you know, you, you don't have any freedom of movement. So, um, you know, it really is an awful problem and I think um, not only is this a, a huge violation of the rights of the children in many
many cases, this is the, you know, in, in their mothers as well, who may have lost their documentation or ISIS burned their documentation or whatever. Often the mothers don't have any sort of legal framework either. Um, but I think we really have to look at the kids as, as being um, completely innocent in all of this. And, you know, if you just look at it purely from a national security point of view, you know, these children, is, you know, especially now going into school age and whether or not they can even get an education is a big question mark. But you're looking at a, a future generation of children that are going to grow up ostracized on the margins of society, um, you know, little choice but to be radicalized, you know, if that's the only other people that they can associate with. Um, and then you're looking at, you know, what happens in the next 10, 15, 20 years in terms of this pool of people, and there are thousands, um, you know, does that turn into the next ISIS? And I think it's we have to look at these things now, but for some reason, when we do look at history, we don't seem to learn from the mistakes of the past. And I think that's just, um, you know, it's a, it's a really painful pill to swallow because I can, I can see this happening right now. Yeah, I do too. Um, uh, are any of the foreign governments doing anything about uh, these children that are fathered by foreigners? Yeah, you've seen a few of the foreign governments over the over the years sort of start to take back some of the families, start to take back some of the fighters. But it really still is a small amount. Oftentimes, um, you know, these countries don't want the fighters. They don't know what to do with the fighters or their families. Um, they see it as a security risk to their own land and, and would rather just sort of turn a blind eye to the problem. Um, you know, and, and some of them worry that they maybe they don't have, um, the, you know, enough evidence to sort of charge if it's a fighter to charge the fighter with anything. Um, so therefore that, you know, that person may run free and, and pose a security risk. But, um, I just think it's really important to remember that these are, these are, these are children. These, you know, they didn't participate in the fighting. They didn't ask to be born to a fighter. Um, and we have to really remember, and, you know, I've met many of these children and they're beautiful and sweet and, um, you know, it very much pains me to sort of think about them not being able to, to have a future. And, and, and also it's incredibly difficult for their, for their mothers too. You know, the mothers, um, they're also ostracized in the communities. Um, you know, they can probably never remarry. They can never get a job. So they're going to sort of be dependent on, you know, running and hiding and trying to find handouts. Often they've been, um, you know, brushed aside by their own families. So it's just this very dark, um, so the future, and I, I really think a lot more needs to be done in terms of rehabilitation for for the children, for the mothers, but also for the children that you know have already been brainwashed to to hate these ISIS children and um, you know ones that may not accept them in a school situation. So I think it's important not to neglect them as well, and that you know to have any sort of long term peace and security, you need to. Um, you know, we, everybody needs to sort of find that, that reconciliation point, especially when it comes to children. It's, um, it's a, a very sad story and, and not one that I, you know, I can't relate to personally because, um, anybody that grew up, um, from the mixture of, of, of peoples in one of these places that was conquered at one time or another. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to some of this on a um, personal level. Anyway, um, wow, that's a, definitely a story that needs to be uh, continued to be followed to see uh, what happens to these kids and how the prejudices evolve in uh, in Iraq 
as as this goes on. Um, let's turn to a, the other story that you wrote this week that is is really interesting, which is uh, about a, a U.S. Marine's journey as a, a, a in ballet. Yeah. So, um, you know, for everybody who who hasn't started following yet, please do follow the Liberty Dispatches. It's where I, I publish the majority of my work now. And, um, you know, it has got a, a big sort of focus on the veteran community and, and defense. And um, so I, one thing I really love to do and. I think, you know, you can't put a veteran on box. And one thing I really like to do is to uh, seek out and, and speak to veterans that, that seemingly do these paradoxical jobs that, that seemingly, you know, from the surface seem very far removed from, um, you know, being a, a machine gunner out there in, in the middle of war. And in this case, you know, I was lucky to, to meet, um, you know, a wonderful, a wonderful person in Roman Bakar and, Roman, um, you know, who really started, you know, his, his young career as, as a ballet dancer. Um, you know, and of course I, something I could gravitate to having been a ballet dancer myself. And, you know, it's hard enough, I think, even now, um, you know, as a, as a man in this profession, you know, it still comes with all sorts of different stereotypes that, that really don't ring true, but for some reason they do hang in the air. So, um, anyway, how? So he was, um, he was a ballet dancer, you know, grew up Russian training and, um, you know, and then at sort of some point, and, and this was pre nine eleven, mind you, I think in, in 2000, he really felt that he needed to, to do something more or else with his life. And, and there was, um, you know, some, some of his, um, family members had been in the U.S. military. And so he decided to put his uh, performing arts career on hiatus and, uh, and became a Marine. And then, you know, effectively a year later, 9-11 happened and he, he, and two years later, you know, found himself in, in Camp Fallujah in Iraq, um, sort of in the heat of it all, right in the beginning. Oh, yeah. And, um, and where is he now? So right now, Roman's actually, so long story short, he, he did have his deployments and, you know, and technically, you know, he's still, um, he hasn't sort of officially retired. He's still um, a reservist, but he he left in around sort of 2008, and after having spent many years downrange, and then um, you know went back to his ballet, his ballet love. Um, he and his wife, um, you know, formed a bit of a, a company in New York, and they're both based in London at the moment. He's on a sort of a scholarship there, and a lot of what they do now in terms of choreography. Is very much centered, or and the dancing is, you know, is centered on Roman's um, military experience. It's centered on using movement um, to to sort of tell that battlefield story. So, which is something I really love because we see these stories told through plays, uh, through music, um, through uh, movies, through different parts of the arts, and I think. Um, there's just so much that comes from the body, and and um, something that I can really appreciate is seeing. Um, you know, some of these stories sort of put to life through movement. And, and sort of in addition to that, um, he does a lot of workshops and things where he'll bring in, you know, gold star moms or other people that have siblings that serve or other people going through grief, immigrants, whoever it may be that have, have kind of had this, um, you know, war experience, so to speak. And dancing really, I guess, helps with, um, you know, moving through a lot of that trauma and, and, and being able to express yourself in a really different way. And so it's, um, you know, it's, I think it's a really beautiful journey. And I think, too, um, seeing, you know, even his fellow Marines that, that come to see these performances and how moved they are by it. And I just I think it, it it's a really um, beautiful way to 
to sort of shatter a lot of the stereotypes that I still think happen between ballet and the battlefield. And, you know, I can certainly attest personally, um, there are a lot more similarities than, than we may assume. Well, having seen many pictures of you standing on rooftops in ballet poses over the years in the middle of battlefields. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that really gets me about this is, uh, when you go back and you look at, uh, old documents from the Roman legions of, uh, uh, the art and the, um, the stories of the, of, of the, you know, tales of being in the, the, a, a legionnaire. Uh, from those times and, and also, uh, Greek stories. There's a lot of similarity to this. This is, you know, so what he's really doing is carrying on a very old tradition of, of what happens when people who experience the battlefield come back out and, and begin to express themselves in the form of art. It's very interesting, actually. Uh, uh you know, so this, this guy's work goes back to a, something very, very old, really, when you think about it. Absolutely. And please check it out. So the links are, are in the newsletter and, and Roman story is in the Liberty Dispatches. And um, you can read a little bit more about the stateless children and my op-ed in the independent. So um, please, please do. And um, I, yeah, I just hope we can continue to, to tell these stories and to, um, to yeah, bring some of these issues to light that I think don't get the attention that they really should. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thanks, Holly. That's a, a two very, very interesting pieces for uh, this uh, episode of The Dispatches. And uh, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Dennis.